From third-generation real estate attorney and New York Press Club award-winning podcaster, Hal Coopersmith, this is Broker's Angle. Welcome to Broker's Angle. I'm Hal Coopersmith. In this episode, we talk about subleasing considerations amid COVID-19, and our 30-minute or less interview is with Dan Marks, who touches on how real estate regulations have affected the market. I think, you know, last June, when the rent regulations came through, um, we saw a, an immediate drop in demand and values for multifamily product. That was an asset class that had traditionally been outpacing almost any other asset class. Um, there were programs in place that allowed property owners to improve their properties and increase rents and really add value to the, to the multifamily stock. When the rent regulations came through last year, it really limited what people could do as far as adding value to their properties, adding income to their properties, and it put a cap on that and, and really sort of stopped their ability to make that, that big add-on. But first, Broker's Angle is sponsored by the law firm of Coopersmith & Coopersmith, a boutique real estate law firm practicing in commercial and residential real estate for over 87 years. This, of course, is attorney advertising, so we are obligated to say prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Hal, you're doing a far better job than I am. That is always so kind of you to say, Richard, and great to be back in person with you. So we thought in this episode, we should talk about subleasing advice for companies as they think about reducing their real estate footprint. First and foremost, it's about security. That's right. From either the sub-landlord or sub-tenant's perspective, the main concern should be about preserving the overlease, especially during this time of heightened risk. So from the sub-landlord's perspective, there should be an increased focus on the security deposit as a letter of credit, which is preferable to a cash security deposit in the event of a subtenant's bankruptcy. And from a subtenant's perspective, in the event a sub-landlord becomes insolvent, the subtenant should attempt to have a recognition of the sublease from the over-landlord so that they can stay in the premises and pay the same rent under the sublease. But of course, with declining rents, that may not be possible. So at the very least, the subtenant should have the option to preserve the lease by paying the amount of rent under the overlease. And another item that both the sublandlord and subtenant should think about are operating expenses and services. How services might increase or decrease as a result of COVID-19 and how certain costs for operating the building will most assuredly increase. Of course, there are also considerations for alterations to the space as well, since the current configuration may not match the current needs. And we can make this whole episode about sublease considerations, but instead we'll link to our notice about sublease considerations for the sublandlord and subtenant amid COVID-19 in the show notes. And with that, let's go to our interview with Dan Marks. So you're a Colorado guy, and you moved to New York. Yeah, I, uh, I'm actually originally from a town called Glenview, Illinois, just outside Chicago. But I come here to New York from Colorado. I spent about seven years out in Boulder, got my MBA, and that's where I got exposed to commercial real estate. I was doing a lot of property management, a lot of commercial leasing, industrial, retail, office. And then uh, at the end of 2011, made the big switch from Boulder, Colorado to Brooklyn, New York. So you didn't go to Brooklyn for the mountains. How come you moved to Brooklyn? <laughs> I No, I definitely didn't. I think Sunset Park is the highest point in, in Brooklyn, and I don't think there's any skiing happening over there. 
I came to Brooklyn, you know, coming from the Chicagoland area, I was really, I think I had sort of an urban mentality in, in, in my in my blood and uh, spent, I think, as much time as I needed to out in Colorado. It was a beautiful place to live. I got a lot of great experience, met a lot of great people and got a good degree. But I think when I was when I was sort of staring down my 30s, uh, I decided, you know, I, I wanted to really challenge myself and, and, and find a, a bigger market and a market that I thought was a little bit more dynamic. And um, I had a lot of friends in New York, and they were encouraging me to move here. My family was encouraging me to move back to Chicago. And um, I met a lot of people in New York and, and had the sort of lucky happenstance of meeting Ofer Cohen, who started the firm Terra CRG that, I'm, that I've been with since day one. And he really convinced me that while it was nice to have this sort of fancy degree, you're not really an analyst, you're not a private equity guy, you're a sales guy, don't deny who you are, and uh, this is a really interesting market, could be good timing for you to enter. And he was right, you know, the market took a big hit back in 2008, 2009, I wasn't paying attention then, but by the time I made the decision in 2011 to make that move, the market was starting to shift, some good things were happening. And uh, I wish I would have come in 2010 so I could have caught a little bit more of the, the upswing in 2011, 2012. But you, you still got there. What were some of the differences between what you were doing in Colorado and learning the New York market? Well, they're very different markets and they operate extremely differently. No surprise. <laughs> I, I will say that every step of my career, and I think everyone's career, you, you, you learn certain things at different times. And I, and I learned a lot about how to negotiate leases how to read contracts, how to understand what people were looking for, what drove people to make decisions, how to sell people on real estate, uh, why location mattered, why building features matter. And through my property management, I learned how buildings actually worked and CAM and, and really the lingo. So I was able to translate a lot of the real estate experience from Colorado to New York. The deal making, very, very, very different. This was a much faster pace, much more aggressive, way more competitive market. And I don't think I was really prepared for that when I first got here. And so how did you adjust? And, and what's an example of how it was more fast paced? I kind of had to fake it until I made it, honestly. You know, I just, I got here and, and I remember I, I was doing a, a property tour and one of the guys said, well, how many offers have you received on the property so far? And, and I'm very honest, almost to a fault. And I think I said three or whatever the number was. And Ofer was with me on the tour. And after the tour, he said, listen, this is New York City. You don't have to lie to people, but you don't have to tell them three. You can say oh, quite a few, a handful. You know, I mean, it was it was just sort of a, a different way of positioning yourself in the market and, and you know, multiple bids coming in and, and people touring and, and the negotiating styles. I mean, this is this is like the major leagues and it was really eye opening and it was like, okay, I have to I have to adjust the way that I'm messaging myself and, and the way that I'm uh, speaking to people and positioning our properties and, and really learning from scratch what it takes to actually sell a property in this market. In Colorado you could do diligence on every single deal. In Brooklyn at the time, due diligence was a four-letter word. We were not getting any due diligence. So I remember somebody made an offer early on, and there was 30 days due diligence. I said, yeah, that seems reasonable. And over again, over my shoulder, says, no, this is New York City. This is Brooklyn, New York. They're not getting due diligence. They can do it before they sign the contract, and that's the way this deal is going to go down. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem fair. He's like, get with it. This is the way this market works. I'm like, okay, lesson learned. So I really like the contrast between the two markets, but one of the things that you said is honest to a fault. And so how did you kind of toughen up and 
be honest while still not being too honest or honest to a fault? Yeah, I think, you know, you sort of walk, sometimes you walk a fine line as a broker. You know, you have to keep in mind you're representing the the seller or the landlord and you want to make sure that you're keeping the process really competitive for uh, whether it's a buyer or a tenant. And you can do you can still be honest with people without without showing all of your cards. And I think that was uh, the, you have to just sort of learn how to position the property, learn how to talk to people, and you don't have to lie to people. Uh, you can still be honest with them, but you don't have to give them all of the information because you know that's that's your leverage. That's what you're, you're going to try to hold on to to try to get a deal done. While it, when I was in Colorado, I wasn't doing as much deal making because I was doing property management and I was doing different sort of jobs. Here, I was 100% commission. It was all selling properties. And so it had to be able to sort of change my attitude and change my messaging in order to really convey that. You mentioned early on that you missed part of the upswing. How do you see the Brooklyn market, which is something that you specialize in now, and how is that market doing? Yeah, I mean, Terra CRG, the, the, the firm I'm with, um, is an only Brooklyn commercial real estate firm. We do sales and leasing. 2010, a year before I got into the market, the Brooklyn commercial sales market was a billion-dollar market. Uh, By 2015, it was an almost $10 billion market. And just this last year, we released our report. It's around $5.5 billion. And so I got here during that run-up. So from it went from like a billion just a few years earlier to five years later, it was almost $10 billion. So I was, I was right at the beginning of that, that run-up. And I, I don't think it had anything to do with me. It was just sort of lucky timing, right? But you know, the market now You mean is, you didn't add $9 billion worth of value? I don't, I don't think so. Don't maybe. Think, maybe. I, mean, I don't okay. know. You know. I don't think so. <laughs> but I will say, I'd say the market is, is healthy. I think there are a lot of political wins that are that are scaring a lot of people. But in general, you know, a five billion dollar market is you know, stacks up against a lot of other markets around the country. You know, Chicago is about that same size as a market, and we're just talking about Brooklyn here, not New York City. You know, so there's still a lot of opportunity. I think in Brooklyn, people are still moving there. Uh, there's still a lot of development, a lot of growth. There's a lot of exciting things happening there. And where are the opportunities? What are tenants and landlords trying to do to position their their properties? So I'll, I'll say I can speak really intelligently, I think, about the commercial industrial sales side. You know, I lead an industrial sales, commercial sales team. And that is definitely the hottest asset class, I would say, in New York City. Uh, regardless of borough, not really Manhattan as much, but the outer boroughs is, is really strong demand. And you know, we did a, a couple large deals with Prologis last year, the first deals they've ever done in Brooklyn. They weren't the only bidder on these sites. I mean, these are very aggressive bidding processes, competitive processes, and they're really looking for scale uh, by and large. They're looking for properties that have buildings and they're looking for properties that have land because they're really trying to cater to the e-commerce boom. And if your property has good industrial features and it has good land for out, off-street parking, that site is going to go really ultra-aggressive into the market. And, you know, the things they're thinking about are – and it's not, it's not necessarily just the Amazons of the world. I mean, there's a lot of companies that support these bigger companies, and there's a lot of laser ship-type companies and sprinter vans sort of that, to help with that last mile. And the population is so dense here in New York that these people will – these investors will look for properties that maybe aren't as ideal as they would find in places with more land. So they have to get a little bit more creative in how they, how they design them and how they market them to potential tenants. Obviously, you know, talking about tenant improvements and trying to figure out how they're going to try to take these old warehouses and, and position them in a way that these tenants can actually make them work. 
I think that's, you know, that's probably one of the biggest challenges that they have. And so what are you seeing for tenant improvements? Is the landlord doing the work? Are they expecting the tenant to to do the work? It's hard for me to say. I, I would say that the landlord, I think, is trying to get these buildings to a, to a sort of a not white box, but sort of a base features, they, you know, level floors, trying to get the you know the roofs in, in great condition, if not raise them to some extent, putting in overhead doors and getting good access. But once they can deliver those base features, then the tenant then would take over from, from that point. We, we're growing our industrial leasing team and we're hiring for that now, but most of our, our expertise on that side has been on the sales side. Anything else you see happening in the Brooklyn market that people should know? Yeah, I think, you know, last June when the rent regulations came through, um, we saw a, an immediate drop in demand and values for multifamily product. That was an asset class that had traditionally been outpacing almost any other asset class. Um, there were programs in place that allowed property owners to improve their properties and increase rents and really add value to the, to the multifamily stock. When the rent regulations came through last year, it really limited what people could do as far as adding value to their properties, adding income to their properties, and it put a cap on that and, and really sort of stopped their ability to make that, that big add-on. But expenses continue to go up without any cap. And so investors basically said, so I'm, I'm going to buy an asset that increases uh, expenses every year, but I'm going to be limited in how much I can actually increase my rents. And you know that's re- not a really good value proposition for me. So I'm either not going to be investing in that asset class right now, or if I am, I'm going to be chasing a much higher cap rate. So instead of paying sub five, now I'm going to be paying north of six or seven in order to adjust for uh, potentially a depreciating uh, value over the next few years until something gets figured out. So we'll see how it plays out. You know, we're we're a, a nimble firm in the sense that we can change our strategy and the types of assets that we're going after, you know, in a, in a day. And so our multifamily teams have really focused on less uh, regulated type apartment buildings and have been successful in, in that side of the business. But yeah, I mean, got REAP benefits are coming up on the on the leasing side. We'll see if that, if that, if that benefit gets extended. That's a really important thing for the leasing um, side of the business. Uh, the Affordable New York Act for the residential development side of the business is coming up in a few years. I mean, these are, these are critical incentives to continue to entice companies to move to Brooklyn, to move to New York City, to develop in our markets. And without them, um, you're not just disincentivizing people in New York City. I mean, people are just going to go to other cities. This is, you know, this is, is a great city, and and you know, I love it. My family lives here, and 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 I'm really glad I chose to move to Brooklyn. But some people are just saying to us, you know what? There's too many regulations. We're we're having a hard time wrapping our head around this. We're not sure when. We don't see necessarily see an end in sight, and we're gonna we're gonna take our investment dollars and put them in another market for now. And as a as a broker in this market, you hate to hear that. Um, because we think this market has so much to offer, but we also are realistic that the uh, government has to allow certain incentives and programs to make sure that people are able to, you know, these are for-profit companies. And so if they can get a better profit someplace else, they're going to go someplace else. So yeah, we'll see how we'll see how the political landscape sort of shakes out. Certainly as a lawyer, and we talked about this before the interview, there are a lot of regulations that I'm familiar with that have affected real estate and that will continue to affect real estate. But before we wrap up, I do ask this question to everyone who's been a guest. One piece of advice that you'll give to other brokers, and you can't say honest, and you can't say (laughs) being too honest, because we already talked about that. Fair enough. Okay. Um, Maybe it's a two-part answer. I think reputation is key. It's one of those things that takes uh, a lifetime to build, and it takes 
sort of a moment to to destroy. And so I think as a broker, you know, we have um, sometimes a bad reputation in the market. And I think that you can change that as a, as a broker. You can change that just by dealing with people honestly and fairly every single time, no matter the circumstances. So I think that's that's one key part. I think the other part is, and I had learned this the hard way, which was, you know, I came into a new market. I knew nothing about it. And I had to work really, 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 really hard, harder than I even knew I could. And I made the smallest amount of money I've ever made in my life, even for the first job out of college. And so you have to have that sort of ability to balance really, really hard work and not making any money and the patience and persistence to be able to keep grinding, keep working towards that success. Because if you if you give yourself enough time and you work hard enough, there's nothing that makes me any more special than any other broker in this market, except for the fact when I first got here, all I did was I worked really, really, really hard. And I believed that if I if I put in the long hours, if I put in the time and went to the networking events and read all the articles and did all that kind of stuff, that I could learn more than people and I could add value to, to my clients. And over time, it'll work. But you have to have that that long view, that that patience in order to get there. Well, that is a great note to wrap things up on. Dan Marks, thank you for being on The Broker's Angle. Thanks for having me, Hal. That wraps up our interview with Dan Marks. For more, visit brokersangle.com or follow us on social media at Broker's Angle. And please feel free to email us at angle at brokersangle.com.